A lot of us have done that relationship building. And so it is scary and there's a lot more to learn. But at the same time, we're also learning to build fields in congenital cardiology. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of your program. Today's episode is called Telemedicine and Patients with Congenital Heart Defects. Dr. Ami Bhatt is an active clinical cardiologist, clinical investigator, and educator. She has developed a robust multidisciplinary curriculum at Mass General to provide requisite ACHD education to cardiovascular fellows. Dr. Bott is dedicated to patient advocacy groups, including the American Heart Association and Adult Congenital Heart Association, and empowering individuals with CHD to lead full and productive lives. She works in conjunction with the heart failure, transplant, arrhythmia, and valve programs, OBGYN, genetics, and pediatrics. Dr. Bott offers televisits to care for individuals with ACHD who live far from Boston or are limited in their ability to make in-person visits. At the Mass General ACHD Health and Wellness Program, patients receive education about CHD and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease primary prevention education. In segment one, we're going to talk to Dr. Bott about becoming a cardiologist specializing in the care of adults with congenital heart disease. Segment two will focus on why she developed a telemedicine program for her patients, and in the final segment, we'll discuss where she believes the future of medicine is headed. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Bott. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the program. I've had the pleasure of listening to some of your presentations in person in Boston and then later in Texas, so this is really exciting for me. Let's go ahead and start by having you tell us why you decided to become a cardiologist. Well, it's actually a little funny. Adult congenital heart disease is what made me decide to be a cardiologist. I was a medical resident and we were on the pediatric cardiology rotation and we were called one day to the adult cardiology floor for an emergency. And that doesn't happen often, pediatricians being called to the adult floor for some reason. Right. And it was because there was an adult with congenital heart disease who was having some complications. And the adult cardiologist at that time did not know as much about the congenital disease. Mm -hmm. And so they called our team. And in my mind, we were in a perfect V-shaped flock formation, white coats flapping in the breeze. And we arrived on the floor and helped this young 40-year-old with Tetralogy of Fallot who had landed in adult cardiology with a pediatric condition, but with adult complications. And that was the first time that I saw how important it was that those two fields would merge um, in the future. And so really, I like to think of that day as the day that I started on the rest of my course. Wow. And that was pretty early in your training then. It was. And as I moved through, it's interesting. I feel like the field of adult congenital heart disease grew along with me. Mm-hmm. And people who had had surgeries in the 1970s were now coming of age. Those in the 1980s were, you know, coming of age with even different surgeries, bringing different complications. And as I went through med school and residency, the numbers of these patients really started to increase dramatically. And I was seeing them on every rotation. I trained in medicine and pediatrics, and it didn't matter which hospital I was in. I was always seeing them wherever I went. Isn't that amazing? And it's so gratifying for me to hear you say this because my son was born 
in the 1990s. And the biggest question at that time was, will he survive to become an adult? And now we're seeing so many adults. It doesn't even seem like it's as much a concern as it used to be. Absolutely. I think it's been great to be able to see them. One of the concerns that we do have actually doesn't have to do with the disease and our success per se, but our success in getting them from when they're kids to actually seeing them when they're adults. Because, you know, when you're younger, your mom brings you in, you're getting seen. But as they emerge into the workforce or college age or, you know, just being old enough to say, you know, hey, mom, I'll either go myself or I don't want to go. We really have a problem with loss to follow up mm-hmm. of young people who were there not being here as adults. If you counted the numbers of adults with congenital heart disease, we should be seeing it's upwards of one, one and a quarter million right now in the United States. Whereas actually, if you look in the major adult congenital heart disease centers, it's less than 100,000 that are followed <gasps> in quaternary centers. Wow. It's probably more than that that's followed in the general cardiology population in the country, and that gives me solace that there are probably people getting care, but it reminds us that networks of care are important so that you can talk to people who have trained in it, you can get the advice you need on how to care for them in the communities where they live. Right. Well, my son is an adult now, and as soon as he turned 18, he decided he didn't need me anymore at his visits, which was really upsetting for me. But I, I was gratified for him to say to me, Mom, you've been preparing me all my life to be able to do this. You have to trust me. And he's been fairly good. He's pretty good about when he comes back from his visit, he'll share any paperwork he was given and he'll give me a synopsis of what happened. But he was starting to feel so good that he decided he didn't need to go for a full year. And I was having panic attacks because (laughs) I want him to continue to do well, you know? Exactly. Well, so it's so interesting to the things you just said. So the first is it turns out, and there's actually research some of our good friends have done in this that shows that parents and physicians We seem to think that the child's attachment to seeing us when we're children is is very strong. And so we're not sure how to help them graduate sometimes, right? Well, you know, the 14-year-old patient needs me and will continue to need me. But if he moves two hours away and there's an adult congenital cardiologist there the kid is actually pretty comfortable transitioning. And it's interesting when we ask surveys, the parent says, oh no, they're very attached to their original cardiologist. And the doctor says, well, they've known me for years. They're very attached to me. And it turns out that half of the kids say, actually, no, I could probably switch to another doctor. I'd be okay. (laughs) So it's important for us to empower them Mm -hmm. to voice that opinion. And, you know, sometimes they will voice an opinion. I feel very comfortable with this person. Then we have to help them establish the relationship with the new doctor. And I don't just mean graduating from pediatric cardiology to adult congenital. I also mean moving across the country. If you look at young people today, they don't stay in the same town in the same city oftentimes as often as we used to in older decades. And so as they're traveling, we need to be able to readily transition them, even as adults, from one adult congenital cardiologist to the next and help them feel empowered and help them bond with that new physician as quickly and easily as possible. So I think you're right. You know, he says you got him ready for it and kudos to you, but we all need to get them all ready for that and help them feel empowered for their own care. 
Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl in. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. Heart to Heart with Michael, please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Before the break, we were talking with Dr. Bott about the importance of adults with congenital heart disease and even our teens, early teens as a matter of fact, becoming comfortable with taking charge of their own care. So now I have a question for you, Dr. Bott. Why is it that we lose so many of our patients to follow-up care? That's a great question. I think there's several factors to it. And we've done a lot of patient-focused groups. And, you know, my patients can tell you I'm always asking them questions about this. But I think the most important things we're finding is, one, as you mentioned before, when people feel well, they're not sure that they need to go see care. And that's even true with people going to their primary care doctors sure. in midlife. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is they've been through a lot. And so any individual who has chronic disease, you do wonder, is the other shoe going to drop when you go to your doctor's office? And there's a little bit of anxiety and there's fear. And sometimes there's almost what we would call PTSD. It's actually something we're studying, whether or not that actually happens in adult congenital heart disease. But memories of what it was like to be ill that make you very nervous about coming back into the hospital system. And so I think that's another important facet. And then there's logistics. If you're a 20 or 30 something and you're either working or in school, you don't live in the big city next to the tertiary care center that provides adult congenital heart disease care. Mm-hmm. then it's actually quite complicated for you to get in. A lot of my patients have kids who they have to pick up from school. You know, mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of life that happens. And what we want to do is empower people to be able to maintain all that life and yet somehow make it a priority or fit into their schedule the fact that routine congenital heart disease care is really important to help them stay healthy. And it's reframing that from a scary aspect of healthcare to an empowering aspect of healthcare. But I really do think logistics, some anxiety, fear, PTSD, and then other times just I'm healthy and I don't want to go find anything else out. Right, right. You know, that fear, anxiety, all of those issues that you just talked about, that happens with us parents too. 
especially mm-hmm. parents like me who thought we had healthy children throughout our entire pregnancy. And it wasn't until after our child was born that we were told that our child had something serious wrong with them and almost died. I mean, even for me, I always feel like I'm waiting for that other shoe to drop as well. And I try to be vigilant, which is why it scares me when Alex skips his cardiology appointments, because I want him to continue to do well. And I think what you were talking about with the logistics, that ties in very nicely to that Vimeo episode that I had a chance to see. And my webmaster will put a link to that on the website so all of you can see it as well. And in that Vimeo presentation, you were talking about telemedicine. This is something that I feel is up and coming. Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So several years ago, I recognized that a lot of my patients live far away from the hospital. And it's really hard for them to actually come all the way in to see me. Mm-hmm. And there are many times where patients are actually doing well. And so in a way, you feel bad making them take off a day from work, find babysitting in order to come in and be seen for mostly a conversation, especially if I've just recently had an ultrasound of their heart. I've had other testing. I know things are going okay. And so that was when telemedicine was kind of first growing. It actually started more in the behavioral health psychiatry side of things. Hmm. But we started to try it here in cardiology. I said, hey, we have it at the hospital, Mass General. They're using it for stroke and for psychiatry. Do you think I could try it? And the hospital was great. They really supported me in that. But that made a huge difference. I was just counting this morning how many of these visits we've done. So as of the end of next month, I will have done 300 televisits with my patients. So for those who don't know, televisit is, it's essentially like Skyping or FaceTiming with your patient, but it's privacy secure. Mm -hmm. So there's a video and it's pretty simple to download on a laptop or an iPhone at home. I have it here on my computer at work and we just pick a scheduled time for an appointment. Wednesday afternoons are my telemedicine clinic. So every half hour, I log in, somebody logs in at home or work, and we can see each other, we can talk, and I can even turn my desktop around so I can show them diagrams, I can show them their own images, and we can talk about it. And it's been really great. Sometimes we do it to go over images, to do teaching. You know, the more Mm -hmm. you know about your heart, the easier it is to feel empowered. You don't know what you have, and, and, and so that's a little bit easier. The second thing is sometimes it's nice because parents, spouses, Other people can be there and be involved in the conversation. Mm. And that's so important because it's not just the patient and me. There are many other people in their lives that want to and need to be involved Mm -hmm. and to be able to not ask for all, you know, of them to come into the hospital, but instead I essentially go to them via telemedicine. We have some really great conversations. In fact, sometimes, and, and you'd think this is odd, and if you had told me this five years ago, I would say so. Sometimes we have the conversation about, is it time to go to another surgery over telemedicine because they're in the comfort of their own home. Sure. They have their loved ones next to them. Mm-hmm. They're not in a sterile clinic environment having to fight through traffic to get to Boston <sighs> right. and then getting this news and then with that news having to drive home. I mean, just that experience versus being on your couch and having me there. Mm-hmm. My patients again and again have said it actually, it works. It works for some patients and some physicians, not others. You have to know your patient and you as a physician have to be comfortable with that technology. But when it works, it's, it's really great. And I think it's brought me closer to my patients. 
It's interesting. We talk about physician burnout. And part of that is not feeling like you have time to connect anymore. You know, the world is so busy. Mm -hmm. And when I can close my office door and I can just, you know, essentially Skype with my patient, gosh, I feel like I'm doing what I wanted to, right? I'm doing the kind of medicine that I felt when I was first that pediatric cardiology medical student, you know, arriving on the floor to help somebody. Mm -hmm. So I think telemedicine has hopefully been good for my patients, been really great for me and just renewing, you know, my energy as well. Wow. That's something that we don't often think about is that our cardiologists could burn out. But there are so many demands. And now pediatric cardiology has changed. Over the 20 years that I have seen cardiology grow, especially pediatric cardiology, the demands that are put on the doctors to know more and more is just unbelievable. And I'm sure you don't get paid a whole lot more. (laughs) than somebody who doesn't have to keep up constantly with these changes. And as our pediatric population is growing older, there are new problems that we're seeing. Like in the mm-hmm. Fontan population, we're seeing more problems with their livers mm-hmm. and with other organs as well. Mm-hmm. It, in a way, it's like a whole new field, isn't it? It's a continually evolving field. You know, it's funny, when you and I first started talking and we were thinking about cardiology, The thing about cardiology is it's a very interesting topic, right? You have arrhythmia issues, you have heart failure, you have coronary disease. But in adult congenital heart disease, you don't just have cardiac disease. You also have a mental health space of having a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. You also have the opportunity to go to school, have a family if you want one, all those exciting things that come in midlife that we get to take patients through. But along with that, we also have the kidneys and the liver. Mm -hmm. And we're learning increasingly, we are learning about the brain and neurodevelopment. And the exciting thing is the world is becoming closer. So even though it's more complex, we are recognizing that it's multifactorial and that we need specialists in each of these areas who know and love our congenital patients like we do. So, you know, if you ask me here at MGH, we have a liver doctor who's fantastic, Karen Anderson, who really works closely with us. And, you know, poor Karen and I went to med school together, and, and that's how I kind of <laughs> found her. And I said, hey, you're great at liver. I have these Fontan And now she loves them like I do. And so, you know, a lot of us have done that relationship building. And so it is scary, and there's a lot more to learn. But at the same time, we're also learning to build fields in congenital cardiology, relationships, and multidisciplinary care. And that's really reassuring, actually. I think it's promising for the future. Oh, I think so, too. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. 
If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Before the break, we were talking about telemedicine and so many other wonderful topics, but I want to talk about something that's kind of related to telemedicine, and that is the advances that we're seeing in technology, including apps that people have on their phones now. I cannot believe how many apps are available to help people. Can you tell me if you use any apps with your patients or if they come to you and say, hey, what do you think about this app? Absolutely. The number of ways that people can keep track of their health on a regular basis now is is through the roof, right? Mm -hmm. And those are apps, but those are also Fitbits and the watches. And so there's a lot of data that can constantly be streaming. And so when we think about this from a cardiovascular standpoint, I really love data, but I think there are, are a few different ways to think about it. One is we as physicians, and we're working on this actually literally right now, need to find ways that if patients want to share that kind of data with us, how do we look at that data? How do they share it? How do we trigger when things are out of range so we know that it's something we should talk about, whereas if it's just normal data every day, we don't want to overwhelm either individuals or the system. So Mm -hmm. I think that's important and that infrastructure needs to be built and it's something that we're all working on right now. I think the other thing is it depends on what kind of a patient you are. And I tell my patients this, some people do great with seeing their own data. Other people, and again, we mentioned this earlier, there are high rates of anxiety in chronic mm-hmm. disease populations. Sure. Other people get that data and it's actually almost obsessive and a little too much. Mm. And if they don't know who they are, oftentimes their caregivers do, whether it's their family members or friends or their physicians or nurses. So I think it's important to recognize that Sometimes data is great, and other times you need to live your life and let the data kind of stream on its own or get the data when you're supposed to. And so that's a little bit of a new arena for us in terms of how do we do that. We ourselves are actually working on a protocol right now for individuals with coarctation of the aorta, Mm -hmm. as well as those with Turner syndrome. Both of those populations can have higher blood pressure, and our thoughts are, Mm -hmm. If you see your doc once a year, are we really catching blood pressure problems, hypertension, as early as we could if you were more continually sending us data? And so actually, it's a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff, and I won't say companies so that I'm not being biased on the air, but it's a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff that when you use it, automatically uploads into my electronic medical record system Wow! so that we can see those blood pressures over the next year. And therefore, the nurses who are screening those, and again, that's the infrastructure I'm talking about building. How do you screen that? How do you write algorithms? And we're working with MIT on algorithms in cardiovascular care here at MGH. But how do you build algorithms to know when something's out of range? And we're hoping that maybe by doing this from home, you just throw your arm in your own cuff, the data comes to us. Maybe we'll pick up high blood pressure earlier than at your annual visit and be able to treat it sooner. Or if you have high blood pressure, maybe we'll be able to make adjustments to your meds more readily than once a year. And so I really do think that this is the future. We just have to have an infrastructure for it and then a mutual understanding of what that data means. 
Right. I mean, I, when you stop and think about it, there are a lot of pieces that have to fall into place to make this work properly. You have to have the app or the technology that's necessary to make it work. You have to have somebody who's screening it and they have to be paid. They have to be trained. Then you have to have a place to store all that data. And wow, there's a lot that needs to be considered. Plus, I wonder, do you have normal or average people as a control, because what if it's normal yep. to have yep. fluctuations? We don't, we haven't really been studying it in that way, have we? Uh, so, so there are some uh, large groups who are studying what normal data looks like, mm-hmm. so that we have a range. And I think that's really important. That's happening all over the country. Mm-hmm. And although people don't usually give a shout out to this group, I do want to give a shout out to Medicare and Medicaid because this year they actually finally came out with codes, you were talking about getting paid, they actually came out with billing codes for giving remote data to your doctor and then your doctor is going to analyze it or your team or your nurse. Mm -hmm. That's actually something that people are doing. So it's interesting, you know, even Medicare and Medicaid are trying to push technology forward. It'll be interesting to see what, what, what the next few years bring. Do you think that this telemedicine might actually save money as far as like with insurance, because it would seem to me that if you're catching problems earlier, mm-hmm. you could potentially prevent people from having major events that would require surgery or, heaven yep. forbid, yep. you know, end a life prematurely. The catchphrase of the day is value-based care. But I think if you really break down what that means to me, I think there are a group of healthy people out there who need to keep in touch with congenital heart disease regularly. But that in touch does not need to be in person all the time, mm-hmm. especially if they have a local doctor, a local primary care, local cardiologist, and us. I think we can use a lot of data as well as use telemedicine to be able to keep in touch. I think then they're the people who need a procedure. And for those people, that's where that multidisciplinary care comes in get everybody in the same room, get them together, bring the patient, get the testing that's needed here at the tertiary center, make a plan, get them done, and then get them back home. And then there will always be some people who fall ill, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's what we're here for. But I think if you start to think about care in that way, you start to move care out to the communities where people live. And, and not only do you save money in terms of catching disease earlier, by being alert or being in care, you actually save money for society, right? There's a day's mm-hmm. lost of work, sure. days of child care. You know, yesterday my patient pointed out maybe the environment when they don't drive all the way down from New Hampshire sure. every time to get yeah. things done. So I think there's so many benefits to getting care out to the communities where people live and only bringing them into the tertiary center physically when there are pre-planned things that really need to be done or when real illness intervenes. But the rest of the time, I think we are good enough now in subspecialty care in cardiology that we can bring our care to you. I just think that's amazing. It almost seems like we're going back in time where the doctors actually made house calls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love and, that. Uh, and this is the new version of house calls, but, but I, think it's, uh, I think it's working. Yeah. Oh, I think so too. I just 
what you were talking about with the anxiety that people can feel, because I know just walking into certain places, it's funny, my producer David and I were talking about how certain smells will just bring back feelings of dread on you. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. there's no controlling that. It's visceral. It's very true. It's very true. Well, as a cardiologist specializing in the care of adults with congenital heart defects, what is the most important advice you can offer them so that they can maintain a good quality of life? That's a great question. I will pair two things. I think the first is obvious from our discussion today. It is to stay in care, to develop those relationships with your caregivers and to get the care that you need. If you're worried, to tell your caregivers about that. And if you need a network of care, if you need someone local where you live who then talks to somebody who's a specialist in the city that's 300 miles away, then you tell them they need to build that too. So I really think staying in care, but developing your own care network and really advocating for yourself. I think that's number one, and that's where we've been headed today. The second, I'll take a slightly different take, physical activity. Mm. whatever Mm. you can do, recognizing that different people have different levels that they're capable of. There is great evidence that you don't need to be a marathoner. You don't need to be a division one athlete. Any physical activity really tends to decrease the potential complications and increase longevity in, in almost any chronic disease, but definitely it's been shown in adult congenital heart disease. So if you can find ways for some form of physical activity, And then most importantly, if you can feel empowered to stay in care and tell people what you need to stay in care, I think those are the things that are going to really help people maintain good quality and and hopefully as we do more studies, good quantity of life. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Dr. Bott. This was such a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time with us and, and thanks for your focus on adults with congenital heart disease. I know you have a personal interest, but it's so important for all of us to keep giving the message that adult congenital heart disease is a growing field and really probably affects everybody. I always tell my patients, go ahead, go out there and ask your friends if they know somebody else with a congenital heart disease. They probably don't just know one. They probably know more. Right. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Well, folks, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Find us on iTunes and please leave us a review. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.